Very good, very good. Find yourself a seat. Here we go, here we go. Back into our series, No Greater Love. Man, it's good to be with you guys here tonight. Um, if I haven't had the chance of meeting you, my name's Eddie. Uh, I have the last, hi. Um, the last two years, I was on staff at New Life as a young adult pastor. And then if you were here back in May, I announced that we were going to transition that specific role to Josh. And man, I'm just so thankful for Josh and for all that he's been doing this summer. We love you, Josh. But part of that transition was, hey, but I still get to hang out with you guys. And I still get to be on the teaching team for young adults. And uh, it's just been so fun. And so fun to get to sit in a room with Josh and just be like, what, what do we think God wants to teach you know, our young adult group? And just pray through that together. So really thankful I um, still get to hang out with you guys. I'll still be here most Tuesday nights and going through whatever series comes up this fall as we continue learning the way of Jesus. Well, tonight I want to, um, we're going to be talking about uh, something that circles a lot more around the subtitle of this series. Our series is called No Greater Love, where we're walking through different words in the Bible that speak about love so that we can know the differences of what it teaches, because not all love is the same. You can say, I love a hot dog, and you can say, I love my wife. Those aren't the same loves, obviously. So our word love is very limited in English. So we're diving into the scriptures and saying, what do the scriptures say about love? But then notice the subtitle. It says, how God's love guides our relationships. And and this is really where um, the rubber meets the road here tonight, as we're going to talk about, and I'm going to try to point out to you how when you understand who you are in the love of God, that changes everything in regards to all other relationships, in regards to your friendships, in regards to your family, in regards to your dating relationships. All those things are informed by the love of God. And that's why we've started talking about agape, and that's God's unconditional love for you, how it's not like the way we love, and you can only love how God loves if you know God. You have to know God in order to love how God loves, which is unconditional. And, um, and then we've also talked about phileo in regards to friendship, how we have, um, you know, that's really something that's suffered a lot in the last few years, especially. I think it's because of the next love, which we started talking about last week, which is eros, that's romantic or sexual love. And I think one of the things that's happened is we live in an age that's obsessed with eros. Like that's, that's kind of the only love the world is interested in talking about. And with that obsession, I think the number one love that, that has diminished is phileo. It's like we don't even really have a context for how can I um, grow a friendship love in the body of Christ with a sister and a sister with me that not, has nothing to do with eros, but we have something that we can be brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. I think phileo has really suffered. Um, but all of this is aligned when you really understand the love of God, when you understand agape, and it has to start there. I think we live in times where it's a lot more popular to talk about eros and, you know, our relationships, and everyone wants to hear about that stuff, but no one really wants to understand that it all flows from the love of God. If you do not have alignment there, if you're not known and loved by God, you will be seeking something in other relationships you were never meant to seek, something that you are only meant to find inside of God. And that's why last week, kind of turns the page, we started talking about the substance of marriage, and we wanted to talk first about what God designed, and then today I'm going to be talking about how we're tempted in so many ways, like so many ways, to replace God's design with our desires. 
those two things many times will be at conflict. What I want and what God has said and how he designed me to live a life to the fullest, when I disagree with that, when my desires don't line up, that's the question. What happens then? And, and uh, I, I really, I love you guys. This is, this is a sermon that I hope you hear from the start. This is based out of love for you guys. And really, even before that, it's based out of love for God because these are the kinds of sermons that uh, aren't fun to preach necessarily. Um, It's not easy to dive into all the things that scripture talk about ways that we have not aligned with God's design because it's a highly debated topic. And so I have to stand up here and I have to preach this and I want you to hear why. It's because Jesus is my king. Like Jesus is my savior. He's the one who gave his life for me. So it's not my job to convince you of anything here tonight. Like that's not my job. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to do the job that God has given me as a pastor, as someone who teaches the word. My job is to open this book and to show you exactly what it teaches about the matter, and then you have to decide, you have to test what I say here tonight, okay? You can reject it if you want. Test it, always test it, because there's a lot of things being said out there about the topic um, that we're going to be talking about here tonight, and not all of it comes from God. Just because it's being said from a stage like the one that I'm on, it doesn't mean it's from God, and so what I'm telling you is you have to test it. You dive into the scriptures. We're going to have so many scriptures tonight. Why? It's pretty atypical for me to even share this many scriptures in a sermon, but I felt like I had to because I want you to see it for yourself, and then I want you to then go to God and say, God, do I align? Do I, do I see what was said tonight as the truth that comes directly from God? Because I am not your authority. God is the authority, and he's the one who's spoken, and I stand under the authority of scripture with you, okay? We're, we're like, we're eye to eye at this moment. Um, I stand under the authority of scripture. So I want to show you exactly what God has to say on this topic, our topic for tonight, God's will for your sexuality. Where does God's will reveal, how, how is it revealed in regards to our sexuality, your sexuality and my sexuality? But first, of course, I have to pray. This is my way of centering my heart and making sure that I'm uh, open to hearing what God has to say. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that... Um, it's level ground at the foot of the cross that as we come to you and as we come to you, Jesus, asking what are the things we need to learn, um, we stand shoulder to shoulder. And so, Lord, I pray that um, what I preach here tonight would be directly from your word, that it would be consistent with the things that you have revealed. But, Lord, I also pray that the tone of my voice, that the tone of this message would be filled with truth and grace, that this wouldn't be a condemning message, uh, for we all have received grace from you. And so I pray that tonight, if there's anyone who walked in with a weightiness, that, that through this message, that we would feel the weightiness lift here tonight, God. There, um, you have set us free, and that's why we know we're free indeed. It's because you're the one who set us free. And so I pray for freedom to reign here tonight. But Lord, give us uh, open ears, open hearts to hear what it, what it is that you want to teach us here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And amen. All right, here we go. We're going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm only going to teach through eight verses, but uh, buckle your seatbelts. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be a fun ride. Here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing to the church in Thessalonica when they say this. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, 
that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. See, even Paul, Silas, and Timothy kind of did what I just said. It's like, at the end of the day, you have to see if this message is from God and you reject it. You reject God. You don't reject me. I'm not worried about you rejecting me. It's okay. I give you permission. You can reject me. But please don't reject the message of God. This is, this is the word of God, and, and his instruction leads to life. But if we go our way, that leads to death. It does not lead towards our joy. So a couple thoughts, just to kind of um, paint the picture of where we're headed. And, and these are just like overarching thoughts that I think need to be said uh, at the top. One is that the world has rejected God's design for sexuality. Okay, so we're, we're starting at a point where almost everything I'm talking about here tonight is upstream. It's in the m minority of popular opinion. Like none of the things are going to make any sense. If I said these things in, a, in the public square, everyone would just think I'm like a crazy person. It's going to sound like crazy talk because in the world that we live in, the, the design that God has for sexuality has been rejected. Um, it does not submit to God's will. Instead, it's gone its own way where the God of the age is the self. And if you think it's good, then it is good. And if you think it's good for you, then it is good for you. And yet here I am, and I'm coming from a completely different perspective. I actually think there's a bunch of things I want that are terrible for me. I think there's a bunch of things that I really, really want that as I look, as God has worked in my heart, I look back and I say, man, thank God I didn't get what I wanted. Thank you, God, that I didn't get what I wanted, because that would have only brought more pain and destruction to me. And so just know that this is a contrary message to the world that we live in because they've rejected God's design for sexuality. And I also have to say this second premise for, for our talk today is that the church has failed at times to present biblical sexuality with a tone consistent with Jesus and the rest of Scripture. There's a lot in that sentence, but here's, here's what I'm getting at, is I had to put quotes around the word church because I'm talking about any building that says the word church and there's people up there saying things. So many things have gone wrong because you can call yourself a church, that doesn't make you a church. To be a part of the church, you have to teach that the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you teach a different gospel, you, you're not the church. So you have to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even when it is a church and they're faithfully teaching the gospel, and sometimes they teach correct doctrine in regards to sexuality, but the tone is so in contrast with the way Jesus ministered to people. Jesus is the person who, who invites Zacchaeus over to his house. Jesus is a person sitting at parties that we're like, what's Jesus doing there? And you know what Jesus is doing there? He's shining the light of the good news of his kingdom into those parties. That's what he's doing. And, and we would kind of look at the actions of Jesus and say, what, how, how does that fit in? Well, here's how it fits in. Jesus understands that every single person longs to be known and loved. Because every person is made in the image of God who's already in relationship in himself. And you want relationship. And what Jesus offers first is for people to be affirmed as human beings. 
And that's what you'll see in the tone of Jesus. And so this isn't a thing where it's like a soapbox where we're supposed to be yelling things to people. No, this is not that. That's not consistent with Jesus, and it's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Again, I'm going to share some of the bad news of the things where we've messed up in regards to our desire. That's the bad news, but I'm going to also share with you the good news. And I think that's where the church has got it wrong at times as well. We just make people feel shame. We feel, you know, people feel like they just, they're, they're bad people, but we don't offer them the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to do my best. By God's grace, I will do everything I can in order to share with you the truth of God's word, but in the tone that God would want us to be hearing this message. So let me go back to verse one. Um, it says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, I love this verse. He says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. That is such a helpful verse in regards to your Christian walk. Okay, he's saying, I taught you how to please God, which you're doing it. You're doing that. You're living a life pleasing to God. But I'm also asking you to do it more and more. So here's here's what they're getting at. They're saying, if you want to live a life pleasing to God, you have to have an on ramp. And the on ramp into the life that pleases God is faith in God. Okay, this is why in the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You cannot have a relationship with God if you do not believe, and I don't just mean like believe that he exists. Yes, it starts there, but it's full belief. It's it's giving God his rightful place. He's the one who has revealed himself as the most high God, the one who created the world. And so when you put your faith in God, you're saying, I don't understand all of this, but I believe in God. And I believe in all the things he said, the, the, the good parts, the hard parts to swallow, the more difficult things to understand. I'm going to believe it all, but I'm starting from the premise that he is truth. And I am trying to align with him because he is God. And I believe in his son, Jesus, that Jesus left from heaven. He came to earth and he lives a perfect life that I couldn't live. And he dies on the cross in my place so that now I could experience resurrected life in Jesus. That's what he's saying is that's the on-ramp to a, please, a life that pleases God. If you have faith in God in the way I just explained, then you are pleasing God. You, ha- you are living a life that pleases God, but that doesn't mean that everything you do does please God. Our actions don't please God. Even though we now have faith in him, there are so many things. And that's why I love the language that they give us there in 1 Thessalonians where he's saying, you're pleasing God, you have faith in him, but you need to do it more and more. Now your faith is going to lead to action that aligns more and more with God's will. And we're God's will in this passage, we're going to get to sexuality, but it starts with, that's why I'm showing you verse one, it starts with an understanding that you have faith in God. So you want to receive this instruction on your sexuality, you have to have faith in God. You have to be on this highway of pleasing God. That's important for me to say because if, if, um, if you don't have faith in God, receiving instruction from the scripture in regards to your sexuality is not going to make any sense because you haven't already settled the matter of who is your authority in life who is at the highest place of authority in your life. That's why faith in God establishes that. God is the authority. God is the one. So when he says, don't do this, we now in faith believe don't do this means don't hurt yourself. It means this leads to bad things for you. And so that's where my faith shows up is, man, God's saying don't do this. And I don't understand why. Why can't, why couldn't he create a world where this was okay? Well, that's where my faith has to kick in and say, but God did create a world where this is prohibited, and I'm going to believe him that that leads towards the greatest joy possible in the human experience because I trust him. 
So it starts with faith in God. Um, but even as we have faith in God, we all know that we, we do a bunch of things that don't please God, that aren't holy, that aren't honorable. Um, and that's why he says we need to do it more and more. Here, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think of pleasing God as more of a direction than a destination. Pleasing God is more of a direction that you're on instead of a destination. Pleasing God, we think of it as a destination. You either are there or you're not. But that's why I read this verse to you. See how it's, it's, it's kind of a both and situation. He's saying you please God because you have faith in him, but then also your actions have to grow and they have to be sanctified. That means that they have to be made holy, that they align with God's design. And that happens over time. That's a more and more. As time goes on, it should be more and more. And so that's why it's more of like a direction of saying, I know where I'm headed. Um, and, you know, I, I have not hid the fact at all preaching to you guys the last couple of years that growing up, I loved video games. Like I, I played many video games for many hours, um, too many hours. It's like a good thing, but you, you can take it too far for sure. <laughs> um, and we grew up with a, a Nintendo, the original Nintendo. We were a Nintendo family, so sorry, PlayStation families. We just, that's, that wasn't our thing. Then we had a Super Nintendo. Then we got the Nintendo 64, and that was where it really like took off for me because there were some incredible games on the N64. So much so, I remember, I still remember like sitting down with a remote in my hand and hearing something like this, like come through my TV. Okay, it's okay. If you don't know what that is, all the gamers in the room just like started worshiping. Like they're just like, yes, yes, Lord. Um, that, uh, that's, the, that's the music that plays right before the start of a race in Mario Kart 64. And uh, even hearing it right now, I, I just became a 12-year-old. Like, it's just like, it's crazy. It's crazy, the power um, of music. And, um, and Mario Kart, you don't even have to know anything about Mario Kart to understand what I'm talking about. Because it's just, it's a, it's a race game where uh, you're, you're racing on these, on these kind of go-kart things. And there's a track, and you're racing against all your friends. Now, here's the interesting thing. On the race... You, if you stay on the course, on the road, obviously that's the fastest speed you can gain, and so you have the best chance of winning, of success if you stay on the road. Now, you can get off the track, and you'll end up in places that are grassy or, you know, sand or other things, and, and you, you're still moving forward, but you're just going slower. You're, you're still in the race. You're still headed towards the finish line, but you're not uh, in your optimal state. You're going slow, and so you fall behind. All those things happen. Now, you could be on the track, off the track, but you could also, if you were bad at the game, you could like, this happened all the time with my friends, never with me, of course, but like they would, they would bump into the wall and you see them like hitting the wall and then suddenly they'd like turn the other way and they'd go the wrong way on the track. And when that happened, thankfully there was this really nice turtle that floated in on a, on a cloud. Where's that turtle? There you go. Um, and, and the turtle would have like a siren and it'd be like, beep, beep, like you're going the wrong way. This is not the right way. And this this idea of running a race or being in a race is language that even Paul uses, and I think it's helpful for us to know. The point being, when we talk about a life pleasing to God, is that you're headed in the right direction. That's a life pleasing to God. It stands in contrast from going the wrong way in the race. And what's the difference between going the right way and the wrong way? At the center of that is Jesus Christ and what you believe about him. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you believe what the message of salvation he brought is, then you're, you're living a life pleasing to God. Now, you could be headed in the right direction, but there are going to be times where you end up in the grass. 
And when you're in the grass, you're going to go slower. There are things that you're not functioning the way you're supposed to, and you have to learn the process of what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be like, and we're going to get back on the road. And that's called confession and repentance, how we get back on the road, back into alignment with the path that God has established. That's the narrow road that he creates. And so we come back onto that road. And so I have to give you that picture because as we talk about things which many of us have failed and will continue to fail in, I don't want you to confuse that with you're headed completely in the wrong way. If you believe the message of Jesus Christ, you are his. That's what defines you. That's what tells you I'm living a life pleasing to God. And everything after that is simply aligning more and more to getting on the right track because that's where you will enjoy more blessings than you'll ever, you could ever imagine. That's the picture of what we're doing here tonight. So we're saying, what are the ways we're off track in regards to our sexuality so that we can get back on the track um, that Jesus has created for us and for our good? So he continues in verse 3 saying, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Now, you know, for all the talk there is, about God's will. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this is a common thing that I get asked. It's like, what is God's will for my, my life in regards to this? And more often than not, it's, it's like, should I go left or right at this turn in my life? Um, but for all the, ta- all the talk we have about God's will, this is, this is a Bible ver- a verse that's so clear. Like, it gives it to you right there. This is the will of God for your life. So he's saying, if you want to know if you're in the will of God or not, in regards to your sexuality, here's the thing you need to know. You have to avoid, uh, that's the NIV translation that we're reading, avoid kind of be like, if you can, like, don't do it. That's not what he's getting at. He's, he's saying don't do this. It's abstain from sexual immorality. That word for sexual immorality in the Greek is the word porneia. We mentioned that last week a little bit. Um, and the best way to understand porneia is it's any sexual activity outside of God's design. Porneia is not a specific word, it is a general word, all right? So it's the catch-all word in the New Testament for anything in regards to our sexuality that does not align with God's design. So if that's what it is, the most important question we have to answer is, what exactly is God's design? Because if you don't know what God's design is, then you will never be able to know what porneia is, the ways that it, 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 it diverts from God's design. So we have to start there, and what exactly is God's design. So now we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We're going to see what God creates because you will see the creation of humankind. But you'll also see the creation of marriage right there. Both are happening at the same time. It's he's creating humankind and he's also, um, Adam and Eve become the first married couple. But one of the questions that comes up is, um, you know, did God restrict, restrict marriage to a man and a woman there? Or is that simply just what happened because they're the only two people who are alive at the time. There are no other people, so there are no other options. And so to answer that question, we have to go into the scriptures, and inside of the scriptures, you'll find Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Helper, last week we talked about his azer. Josh spent time on that. I don't have to spend any time on it, but uh, just reminding you, connecto is the word suitable. Connecto means similar or same, but opposite. It's kind of this paradoxical word. It's easy to understand when you think of it in the terms of humanity as male and female. We are equal in the image of God, right? Both are created in the image of God, equal, and yet they're not the same. They're not the same. God makes two genders. He makes male and female. 
And the reason I'm showing you that is because inside the creation of marriage is a word that calls for sexual difference. Okay, it, it, it specifically is referencing the fact that there's sexual difference between Adam and Eve, and that is inside of the creation of marriage. So they become one, and they become one in covenant towards each other. The rest of Scripture is going to continually affirm and call husbands and wives to be faithful to one another. And so they're, 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 um, they're one in marriage in a covenant and in a sexual union and that's what we're, we're talking about. When we say one flesh, I believe it means both those things. It's you're in a covenant of marriage and you are now in a sexual union. That's what, God's, that's what God creates. A man, a woman, in a covenant, and a sexual union. That's what marriage is. And it does not take long for, for us to deviate from that in, in, in the story of humanity. We just go one book ahead into the book of Exodus. Now we have the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Seventh commandment says this, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, adultery in the Old Testament, especially for the Jewish people who are reading this in the Hebrew culture, adultery here in the Tenth Commandment is the, it's the porneia of the Old Testament. Because again, remember, porneia in the New Testament in Greek, that's the overarching word, it's the catch-all. For the Jewish people, that would have been the word adultery, um, because for them, what that means is anything that deviates from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So anything that changes from there, and that for sure includes a married person sleeping with a person they're not married to. Of course it includes that, but it's not limited to that. And we've, it's, that's for sure what's going on in the Jewish culture, and we know that it's solidified because, for us because when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he's the one who tells us, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is expounding upon the law and really showing us what he meant. Again, adultery is deviating from anything that God designed. And he's saying that lust, a desire that is sexual by nature, should exist inside of his design. And when you do that outside of his design, then, then it's sinful. It's adultery. And so this, uh, to the Jewish nation, they would view Pornea is like, that's adultery. It's, it's deviating from God's design. So there are so many ways that we have devi deviated from God's design. I can't list them all, but I, I just want to share the four that I think are most common in, in 2023 and the things that uh, we have to face as young adults living in the time that we live in. The first one Jesus bringing up is lust. So lust is sexual immorality. It falls under pornea. When we're talking about lust, lust is desiring someone to a level that you're envisioning or imagining having a sexual relationship with that person and you're not married to that person. Now, if, if you're married, it's someone who's not your spouse. And then if you're not married, well, then it's anyone because you're not married. Okay. And that is what lust is. It's, it's using your mind to mentally go to the place where you have a sexual relationship with someone. And, and that's why Jesus says you're, you're already sinning because that's in your heart. Um, you have committed adultery in your heart. And so that's one of the boundaries that God puts on it. Um, and so lust is sexual immorality. And because we know that lust is sexual immorality, that's why it's not hard to understand that pornography is sexual immorality as well. Because pornography is taking the things that we would imagine and it's now providing an image or words to put that image in your mind. 
Okay, so when I say pornography, I'm referring to anything, any uh, pictures, video, or even books, right? Like there's books that they, they're so explicit in what they write. The purpose of their writing is to put these images in your mind. They're trying to awaken eros inside of you, and it's not something to be awakened in that way. God made eros. It's supposed to exist inside of his design, and then it's beautiful. Anytime we pull away from that, then it becomes destruction. One of the things that's been so fascinating for me to watch Um, You know, I'm in my 30s, and to see the perspective of secular psychology in regards to pornography has been fascinating to me because at first it was it was very much encouraged. There was a lot of just like this is a healthy way to have a sexual output without having a sexual partner, and yet now psychology is finally catching up to realize that it's destructive to the mind in so many ways. And this is not again not Christian saying this. This is secular psychology talking about the damaging effects of using images. Or, or words to put those images in your mind because what happens, it literally rewires your brain and you, don't, you, you suffer in the ways you relate to other people because of that rewiring. And so this is God putting a boundary saying, this is not going to be good for you. Um, and a lot of times people are like, well, pornography you know, didn't exist back in the New Testament when, the, when these books are being written, so we're not talking about that. Well, side note, uh, in the time the Bible is written, the New Testament is written, there is absolutely the existence of, you know, pornographic imagery that was inside of culture. I would actually say that the Roman culture was more explicitly pornographic than the culture we live in today. Even with the internet and all the things that we have today, yes, it is widespread, but it's nothing like what it was like back then. And we know that because of archaeologists and what they've found is basically the equivalent of putting por- pornography on like a billboard on the interstate. Like we, that's still not happening in America um, and so the, the Roman culture was very much influenced by the idea of taking um, images that are sexual and painted and putting them in public places that we would, honestly, we would be like, whoa, that's like super intense. So when, when the word is written of like sexual immorality encompasses all these things, knowing that, uh, that lust is connected to that. So that's why we can draw this conclusion that pornography is also sexual immorality. All right, moving on. Uh, just two more. Uh, the next one is that uh, premarital sex is sexual immorality. That is when uh, a sexual union exists prior to the covenant of marriage. Premarital, obviously, meaning it's like you might even be thinking we're headed there. Like that's what, that's what we desire. We want to enter into that covenant, and that is good. That's not a bad thing. But if you um, enter into the sexual union without the covenant, there... Um, there is damage that is done inside the relationship because of that. This is why you go back to God's design, and sometimes I'm the kind of person who just says, like, why is that? And I I start asking myself that question of, like, what's behind all these restrictions, God? And I can tell you this now as a married person that I believe that God restricts this until you get to the covenant because the covenant is me saying, I am with you for the rest of my life. I have signed up for you for the rest of my life, no matter what it is. If your prefaces change, if you change, it doesn't matter. I have committed to you. And when you enter into a sexual union, that is as vulnerable as you can get with your body. And you're going to start learning each other in the most vulnerable way. And it's not safe emotionally to do that without a covenant. It's not good for people to enter into that level of vulnerability without the safety of a covenant. This is why God designs it. And he says, I want both those things to happen together. A covenant, a lifelong commitment of, and commitment of faithfulness towards each other 
and then enter into that sexual union, and then it becomes so beautiful because you're not worried mostly about your compatibility. Because that's kind of like the, the lie that the world has spoken over us, is we, we have to engage in sexual activity prior to marriage to know if we're sexually compatible. But I can tell you through, through the teaching of God's word, and also from all that I've seen in the life that I've lived, is if you and, and someone else, you want to get married, and you both are loving God and you are pursuing him, you want to have a life that's pleasing to him, you both believe in Jesus Christ as your savior, and you want to honor him more and more, if that's true and, and you get married, you're going to be compatible because everything else can be overcome. The lie is that you have specific needs sexually that cannot be met only by a certain amount of people. And I'm telling you, that's nowhere in scripture. If you're marrying someone in God's design and you are pursuing God, that's the beauty of marriage is that you will discover those things inside the covenant of marriage where there's a safety provided by the way that God designed it. So that's why Paul, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he kind of speaks to the topic because he says, Now to the unmarried and the widow, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried. So I just have to pause right there because we live in a time where being single is frowned upon and it's talked about as if you're missing something. Hear me, if you are single, you are not missing anything in your life in regards to your walk with Christ. Like, you don't have to wait to get married to discover what the, like, life that God has for you is. That is not at all what the Bible says. And the Bible's not even neutral about being single. The Bible is positive about being single. I, talked, I spent a whole sermon on this, uh, I guess that would have been a couple years ago, where I talked about how the Bible, Paul's like, you guys should be single. I think being single is awesome. His main reason is because you then have a lot more capacity to give yourself to the purposes of God in the church, in the kingdom of God. And so he recommends it. That's what he does here again. He's like, man, if you're not married or if you're widowed, just stay unmarried, as I do. He was, he was also single. But then he says... But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. See, it's right there. He said burn with passion, meaning uh, entering into sexual union prior to marriage. That is not good. Why? Just enter into marriage because then you have the, now you're in God's design by marrying someone um, and, and waiting until marriage, the covenant of marriage, to then now enter into the sexual union. All right, so premarital sex is also going to fall under porneia. And then the last one is uh, having sex with a person of the same gender is sexual immorality as well. So for that, again, continuing, you go back to Genesis, then Exodus. Now we get to Leviticus. This is the most direct command from God in regards to this sin. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, he says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. He's saying that's wrong. That's not what I command of you. So what happens is you see that verse in Leviticus and you're like, okay, that's clear. Everyone has a general understanding. That's as clear as you can make it. Don't lie down with a man the way you would lie down with a woman. Don't have sexual relationships with people of the same gender. But the, you know, the argument ends up being, well, but that's the book of Leviticus, right? Like we're, we're not doing all the things that the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy say. Like we're not sacrificing animals at church today. So if we're not sacrificing animals then maybe we don't have to follow that command. 
Well, I, I honestly, I could spend a whole sermon talking about this topic of what, how do you make that decision? Um, and thankfully, the Bible speaks to it, and specifically in regards to Jesus who comes to fulfill the law, and, and we could probably spend some more time talking about it, but I'll just kind of summarize it a bit for the sake of this message here today, and that is what is for sure true is that if something is said in the Old Testament and then it's reaffirmed in the New Testament, that is as clear as it can be in the Bible of saying nothing's changed, okay? This is a command from God back then, and it's a command from God for you today. Think about it. The Ten Commandments are in the Old Testament. Is anybody saying, oh, yeah, we, like, the Ten Commandments, we should just, you can skip that. You're allowed to murder now. Like, it's fine. You know, like, no one says that. Why? Because it's so obvious that there are moral codes from the law that are going to continue today, and, um, and one of the giveaways of knowing this has to continue today is when the New Testament reaffirms something that is said in the Old Testament. And so for that, I'll take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I think the NIV did a fantastic job with the translation there where it says, nor men who have sex with men. If you have a different translation, there'll be other words. The reason there's so much variance in the translation is because what Paul does here is he, he basically, he creates a new compound word right there. And so kind of translators kind of scratch their head and they're like, how exactly are we supposed to translate this? Well, again, what, um, if you just sit there and say, what is he referencing? And look at the two words he's using. What could he possibly be referencing? And if you study that a bit, here's what you'll find out. It's really awesome. The Old Testament's written, written in Hebrew. But at the time where Paul is teaching, he's writing in Greek. But the Old Testament had already been translated into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. And if you look into the Septuagint, and if you go back to Leviticus chapter 18... Verse 22, you will see two words there in, Hebrew, in Greek now, because it's translated into Greek. You'll see part one of the word and part two of the word in that exact commandment in regards to having uh, same-sex sexual relations. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is he shoves those two words together and, and he creates a compound word. That is as clear a reaffirmation of something in the Old Testament because he literally takes those two words and he's like, it's like he's saying that. Like what, what happened there in the book of Leviticus, he's saying that is also still on this list of things that do not align with God's design. These are things that do not lead towards life. They lead towards death. And this is what he's saying. It's, it's still a moral code that would apply today. Now, I would say those are the, the most common forms of sexual immorality today, but if that's all I share with you, well, then that's not the complete message, because my goal here today is not to make anyone just feel bad. I want to show you what is found in the scripture in regards to life. God, God always gives us the bad news so that we understand the good news. He's not just in the business of just giving you bad news. He's, he wants you to understand why the good news is good, and you won't understand that it's good news if you don't understand the bad news. And we have faith in God. We're saved, and God is calling us to abstain from these things that I just talked about. And because he's calling us to do that, that means it's possible to do that. Okay, just because something's common doesn't mean it's inevitable. We, that's, that's the tactic of the enemy. He just wants us to think, well, this is so widespread, like all around us, like surely it can't be that bad. And it's like, no, what's common, yes, I agree, but that doesn't mean it's what's best for us. And that's why we come back to the scriptures. So how, what, what has God given us in regard to sexual immorality and overcoming it, he has given us very clear instruction. And he says this, run away from it. 
run away from it. If you could hear this word today, if, if you've struggled with any of the things I've talked about or any other topic that you know does not align with God's design, we're supposed to run away from it. We're not supposed to get close to it and see if we're strong enough to say no. And this is what we constantly do because the enemy, you know what he's doing? He's not trying to toss you into sexual immorality. He's giving you a little taste of it. Can I just get you a little bit closer this way? Maybe a little bit of compromise in this area in your thought life. Maybe, maybe a little bit of getting closer to crossing the line in a relationship you have. He's just going to entice you into it. And that's not what the scripture says. It says, run away from it. You do not, you're not supposed to discover how far is too far. You're supposed to run away from it so that you don't fall into it. That is strength in regards to sexual immorality. It's not, I'm going to be the Christian who can date someone and we can even spend the night in each other's house alone and we're not going to sleep together. Like that's, that's how good a Christian I'm going to be. It's like, no, 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 you do not. That's not, that's the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. The Bible says if you're dating someone and you want to have sex with each other, because maybe you're thinking I'm going to marry this person that's in my future, well then never put yourself in a place where that can happen. That's how you get to the victory. I, no one, me, you, no one is strong enough to say no. If, if the circumstances are a specific way, the enemy will do everything to put us in the place where we'll say yes to something we shouldn't say yes to. And so the instruction of scripture is run away from it. And I'm not going to jump into practical ways. I think sometimes pastors do that. They're like, well, if this is your sin, here's how you run away from it. I don't think I really need to explain it to anyone. <laughs> I think the Holy Spirit can do that for you, okay? Run away from it. If you think, oh, I think I'm running away, then you're on the right track. Whatever that means for you and what you feel tempted in, run away. And it's not just that that he gives you. He doesn't just give you instruction, but God now gives you the power through himself. The power is given to you through the Holy Spirit. Check it out. Last two verses I'll read here in this passage in 1 Thessalonians. Verses 4 and 5 say this. That each of you should learn to control your own body. So that sounds like he's saying just do it yourself, right? In a way that is holy and honorable. But then listen to verse 5. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. A different way of saying what Paul is saying right here in verse 4. He's saying... The reason you can have self-control in regards to your sexuality and have a, a, a sexuality that is holy and honorable is because you know God, because you have the Holy Spirit. The power to abstain from sexual immorality is not in you. It's found in God. And all you have to do is invite that power into your life and run away, and you will be blown away how you can overcome sexual immorality. You do not have to follow the way of the world. You can stand in stark contrast of the way that the world views sexuality because you have seen what God has said. You receive his instruction and you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. So this is the call of scripture. We're supposed to avoid sexual immorality. And that's why I just wanted to walk you through specifically with biblical support why those things are not inside of God's design. But I now want to add just a little bit of pastoral, um, just kind of some thoughts in regards to how the church has failed, even if we teach that those things are sin, the ways that we've failed in how we share about those sins. And so um, first, I, I just had a few thoughts um, in regards to pornography and premarital sex. I've, I've, heard, um, I've heard it spoken about in such a way and that, that preachers are bringing such heavy weight on don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And the problem is, like I said, 
just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you, you won't ever sin. At times, some people will fall into that sin, but because the preaching was so heavy-handed, there's an incredible amount of shame on the person who has committed the sin, so much so that now they start to believe that they can't, their life can't be redeemed by God. And they start viewing themselves as, as just damaged goods. And there are people who are in the church who heard this message, then fell into sin, and then believed that they couldn't have a godly marriage anymore because of the actions and the choices that they had made in regards to the sexuality. And I'm telling you, that is not in our theology of salvation. There are no unredeemable sins. That is incredibly dangerous. Think about that. If there are certain things that God can't redeem, then he's probably not God. The reason I have my faith in God is because no one is too far that he cannot reach, is how the Old Testament talks about it. You can't be too far from God that he can't reach you. And so in the same way, there's no sin that you can commit that, that makes you unredeemable. Yes, there's always a path, and, and I'm not saying it's just like changes from night to day, but there is for sure a path of redemption for every single sin. I have to believe that. I believe that for any sin of any kind, you submit that to God, enter into confession, repentance, and see the powerful work of resurrection of Jesus in your life. You will see it. And so if you've fallen into any of the things we've talking about, talked about here tonight, I'm not saying you're doomed. I'm saying see it the way God sees it and come into the light and start feeling what it feels like. Get out of the darkness. All these things live in the darkness and we decompose in the darkness. But if you'll bring it into the life, you'll start feeling life again. If you're in any sort of cycle, in any of these sins, the trap is you will feel like your soul start to deteriorate. And that's why God says, let's just bring it into the light. And I will, I will speak life. And I won't even just speak it over you. I will be the power for you. That's how much God wants you to experience the joy in regards to your sexuality. So I think the church has been heavy-handed at times, so much so that it pushes people into shame. And that is not my heart today. My heart is to call you into the things that God has, knowing that every single person in this room has not aligned with that at one point or another, and will continue to be tempted to not align with God's, God's design for the rest of our lives, as long as we live here on planet Earth. All right, then thinking about the topic of lust. Uh, one of the things that I think has been unhelpful in the way it's talked about is that it's assumed that every single man is someone who str struggles with lust. Uh, I don't see anything in Scripture that's, that just guarantees that a man will lust after a woman. Um, I don't think that about any sin, honestly. I think uh, sins are available to all people equally. <laughs> um, and yes, it might be statistically true that there could be some differences, but those statistical differences are completely irrelevant because they change nothing. So the problem I have with just assuming that it's men who, who lust, well, the problem I have with that is that then if there's a woman who struggles with lust, then she feels like she's some sort of alien, right? And so then there's this like extra amount of shame because it's like I struggle with something that men struggle with. And so there's a lot more shame and confusion that comes with it. Again, we, I don't know where we got that from, but it's not something that the Bible teaches that it's specifically towards men. And then even worse, here's what I think that uh, is problematic is we, we assume that men struggle with lust, and then we've presented kind of this idea that the solution to their lust is for, is for women to dress more modestly. This is, this is a big problem, okay? Let me tell you why. One, the Bible does teach about modesty, and, we could, and everyone should desire to honor God's word in regards to modesty. But that's a completely separate issue because modesty does not solve lust. I'll tell you that right now. It doesn't solve it. You don't, you, lust is using what? Real life or your imagination? It's using your imagination. It doesn't matter what the person's wearing. If you are going to lust, you can lust regardless of what the outfit is. 
And the big problem with it is that you're placing the weight of a sin on someone else when it belongs on the person committing the sin. Okay? So it's like, do we clap about that? Is that a good? I don't know. (laughs) But that's where I just, I want it to be very clear for everyone. If you lust, meaning you imagine someone in a sexual relationship who you're not married to, if that's something you're, you have to repent of that. Okay, you have to bring that under the will of God, not someone else. And then if someone else is being immodest, that's their thing. And that's not your job to fix that and not vice versa. So we got to make sure we're not trying to somehow com- confuse our own sins and blaming our sin on someone else. When you sin, men or women, when we sin, we own our sin. And that's what you do through confession. You're, you're agreeing with God. I agree, God, this is sin, and it's I have sinned against you. That's what David says in Psalm 51. I love that. Against you and you alone have I sinned. He gets to a place where he's so honest that he understands the reality that he's the one who sinned against God first and foremost. And then his sin against God brought terrible destruction upon his other relationships in his life. But he got to the place of understanding it's me. Like, I'm the one who did that. So just wanted to share a few thoughts on lust. And then finally, I would say um, in regards to having sex with the same gender, um, I'm very, very concerned that we've almost equated having sex with someone of the same gender with being same-sex attracted. We're somehow talking about it as if it's the same thing. There is a huge difference between feeling attracted to someone of the same sex and engaging in sexual activity with someone of the same sex. And we need to talk about how same-sex attraction is like any other desire that we have to submit under the will of God. By making it taboo, we increase shame and and people feeling judgment by simply saying it is a desire that exists, and it's a desire that does not align with God's design. And so you have to bring it under submission to the will of God, just like all other desires that don't align with God. Just like all the other ones. Think about it. There are people in this room who are going to be tempted to have sex before marriage. Okay, some of you in this room, you're going to feel that temptation. You're going to have that desire, but just because you have that desire doesn't mean it's okay for you to pursue it. You might have that desire, but you have to bring that desire under submission to the will of God. And there are people in this room who, let's say you get married, and, and you might be tempted at some point not to be faithful to your spouse while you're married. So you're like, yeah, I'm married, but I, I feel this pull. Oh, maybe this relationship, and, and you feel that temptation Well, in that moment, you should not pursue that desire. That is not a desire that honors God, so you have to bring that desire under the will of God in the ways we talked about, always talking about sexual immorality. Follow the same steps, and you have to do that for the rest of your life. When a desire does not line up with God's will, you have to to bring that under God's will and, and, and do that for the rest of your life. And so we all desire things that don't align with God's will, it's important that we, um, we don't single out same-sex attraction as if it's this unforgivable or mortal sin. I think that's caused so much damage to single it out. I would like to put it under scriptural t- uh, language, just like James talks about it. It's a desire, okay? And I believe that it's a desire. We don't even have to talk about nature-nurture. It doesn't really matter. It's a desire that doesn't align with God's will. And what do we do with that? James chapter 1, I preached through this in the last series uh, when we went through James, he says, but each person is tempted, it's on the screen, when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then, here it is, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. The word sin doesn't show up 
with desire. It shows up after desire. It's when you have a desire and then you choose to act on it that then it becomes sin. And this is when it becomes problematic. We all feel the pull towards sexual immorality during our life, but we're not defining ourselves by desires. I'm not defining, I'm not giving myself a name because of my desires. This is why I personally try not to use terms of identity in regards to sexual attraction, uh, specifically towards the same sex. I, I won't speak a bit in terms of identity, which is like, am I gay? Like, am I that? Or am I homosexual? I don't think that's helpful because it's like, well, at what point are you and what point are you not? The Bible never uses terms of identity in that way. It talks about the act. It talks about having a sexual relationship with the same sex. And I think that's so much more helpful because if we start using terms of identity and then you say, well, the Bible does, you know, that's against God's design. Now it's something personal when it shouldn't be. It's simply saying, if you have a desire, we, we all have desires we shouldn't have, but we're going to bring it under the will of God because we want to, here it is, because we want to please God more and more. And whatever it looks like to please him more and more, that's what each of us needs to lean into. What the world is telling you is this, whatever you want and whatever you do, that's what determines who you are. Your identity, you will figure it out as you live more life. You will figure it out based off what you want and what you do. That tells you who you are. God tells you something completely different that will change your life forever if you receive it. And that is this, God says who you are first. God says who you are, and it's based off if you've placed your faith in him. If you place your faith in God, then you are, I'll tell you exactly what you are. You are his child. You are his. And when you, when you know who you are, then over time, your desires and what you do changes. Over time. It doesn't happen overnight. I wish it happened overnight sometimes. I'm like, man, I know I'm a child of God, but there's all these inconsistencies I have in regards to my walk with Christ. He knows that. But what he's saying, he's always trying to pull you back. For every time you stumble, he's the one there to pick you up and pull you back to, I say who you are. So for anything that you've stumbled in, you have to come back to who God says you are. Because if you accept terms of identity from the world, it will only confuse you and lead you towards more destruction in your life. And God says, here's what we do. Come back to who I say you are. Come back to who I say you are. We're going to invite the worship team to come forward now here as I bring it to a close. Here, here's where I want it to end tonight. I believe that sexual immorality is fueled by our loneliness and our desire to be known and loved. And that is not an evil desire. You were made to be known, and you were made to be loved. God has made you in that way specifically. But sexual immorality will never fill that void for you. You could try all the things sexual immorality has to offer you, and you will feel more empty at the end of it than you ever thought possible. Because what your soul longs for is to be known and to be loved by God. God's love guides our relationships. And if you're seeking the love of God to be found elsewhere, you're never going to find it. That's why when I thought of how could I end tonight, I prayed about this. And I think what the Lord would invite some of you is to realize how you might be venturing into spaces of eros 
but you've never really focused on figuring out what agape means with you and God. You don't know what God has said over you. When I say that your identity is something that God speaks over you and you can't fill that in those blanks yourself, that might be a sign that you need to spend some time figuring that out. Find your identity in the love of God and then you can now right-size the appropriate path into all other kinds of love, into phileo. Do you feel like you struggle with friendships or you feel like, man, I just can't form them? I can't figure out how can I actually have a true friendship? Again, maybe come back, maybe. Again, I'm not saying it has to be, but maybe do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know that God doesn't regret making you the way he made you? And that if you know who you are as a child of God, that gives you a confidence to know, I'm built this way. The things that he made me are inside of me. And I can now find friends who would relate to that. And specifically in regards to Eros, you would say, I, I want that. I have a desire for that someday, but I don't know who I am in God. Then you will, you will over-exalt Eros. And Eros will become your God. And you will serve it, and you will feel like you're serving it and not God. That's why we always come back to this. So my challenge for some of you in this room, I don't know who you are, but some of you need to kind of take a break from exploring the space of Eros for a season to focus back on, your, on knowing who you are in God. And if you have the time to, to in, in find being known and being loved by God, and then you say, okay, now what do I do with this desire I have in my heart? Now you know the path to discover that in a way that would honor God instead of leading with, man, I just, I have this desire, so how do I figure that out? That's my heart. I believe that all of us here tonight, what we do need to do is be reminded who we are in God. You are not your sin. You are not known by that by God. You are not named that by God. When Paul lists all those things I just listed, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he lists all those things as terms of identity, and then he says, as were some of you. Were. You are no longer identified by your sin. Why? Because they are now saints, because they have believed the message of Jesus, and the same thing is true of you today. You are not identified by your sin. You're not identified by your mistakes. You're identified by what God has said about you. And so let's, uh, let's stand together. I'll close. I want to pray for you. We're going to sing sing our way out tonight, reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. Father, thank you that you do not call us our sin. <laughs> thank you that you do not add shame or condemnation because if we are in Christ Jesus, you have now removed that from our lives. And so Lord, right now in the name of Jesus, I pray for a weightiness to lift off my brothers and sisters. There are people who are feeling the weight and I just speak against that right now. I pray that instead they would walk into the light of what it means to be your child. I pray that today would be a day where we rejoice knowing and we can give thanks that you have given us provision and you have given us standards, but not just standards, but you've given us yourself in that as a provision. And so God, we give thanks to you and we ask that you would continue to lead us in the way that is pleasing to you more and more every day of our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Come on, let's worship the Lord together.